Judges 20, verse 27 to verse 48. Now, of course, during the Second Gulf War, the world became familiar with an interesting character, the Iraqi information minister, Ander Saddam. Uh, his name was Muhammad Saeed al-Sahaf. Uh, he was affectionately known to the world as Baghdad Bob. Uh, Brother David is smiling because he, he knows I love Baghdad Bob. And, uh, and he was affectionately known as Baghdad Bob. And, uh, and you may remember those of you as the American forces approached Baghdad. Uh, Baghdad Bob gave us his assessment of the situation on the ground from the Iraqi standpoint. He said, there are no American infidels in Baghdad. Never. Our initial assessment is that they will all die. And most famously, as we saw on TV, Baghdad collapsing all around him. He was still out there giving press interviews. And he said this, the Americans are not even within 100 miles of Baghdad. They are being besieged between here and Basra and other towns. Even the American command center in Qatar is under siege. We chase them here, and they chase us there. That's just how it is. And of course, as we were seeing the pictures, we knew the claims of Baghdad Bob throughout really were ridiculous. But he was so confident in himself, and, and the more he talked, the more some of us thinking, well, you know, maybe CNN is colluding with the Americans here. Maybe, maybe there, is no, you know, there is no smoke. Uh, you know, there's no smoke without fire, as they say. So perhaps he's onto something here. Uh, we started doubting. He was planting doubts in our minds. Could he be right after all? But of course, history says that the facts, in the end, spoke for themselves. Iraq was completely overrun by the Americans. Uh, Baghdad's Bob, <laughs> comical propaganda, in the end, failed to win the war. As I thought about the saga of Baghdad Bob, it reminded me that it is important to know the facts of life for ourselves, isn't it? It is important to know real facts, what is true and what is false. And we need to know that really, especially during times of war, because our lives depend on it. The Bible teaches us, of course, that all human beings are involved in a war. It is a spiritual war. And this war has been raging since God created the world, since Satan fell prior to that, and God created the world, and has becoming engulfed in this spiritual war. And if, in so to speak, everyone here in this room, it's important we understand this, that there's a war going on out there, and everyone in this room is in two camps. Okay? You are either in the camp of God on his side in this spiritual war, or you are in the camp of Satan and the works of darkness. It is that simple. Two camps. And you know deep in your heart which camp you are in. But sometimes you may be deceived about that. The Bible teaches us that God has already triumphed in this spiritual war. He has triumphed over the enemy camp and he has done it through the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that remains, really, in this spiritual war is the victory parade. The war was won on Calvary by God. 
And all that remains now is a victory parade when the Lord Jesus Christ appears for the second time to make all things new. Those are the simple facts. And the question you have to answer for yourself this morning as you sit here is very simple. Do you share in this triumph of God? Are you on his side or are you in fact his enemy? And if you do share in the triumph of God because you've come to that position of surrender, what difference is it making in how you live? Are you resting in this victory that Christ has won at such great cost? Is it changing, transforming your life? Are you, in some, are you going out there enforcing his victory, so to speak? We'll talk about that. Because this morning, you see, I want to talk about two implications of God's amazing triumph in Christ. Looking at this passage, look with me at Judges 20, verse 27. There are just two implications I want to draw for you, and they are in your outline. The first thing we see from this passage is that all false believers, all false believers will be destroyed by God. All false believers will be destroyed by God. Now, those of you who were here last week, we saw that Israel, if you don't know what's going on in this passage and you've just read it for the first time, what's happening here is that Israel is in the middle of a civil war. And this civil war is raging between the 11 tribes of Israel against Benjamin. Israel is standing with God and wants to punish Gibeah. It wants to punish Gibeah for those sins that Gibeah committed in Judges 19. But Benjamin has broken ranks with other tribes, you know, the 12 tribes, and is protecting Gibeah. It is siding with sin against God. And this war should be very quick. Why should it be quick? Because Israel has 400,000 soldiers. And Benjamin only has 26,000 troops. But God has allowed, as we saw last Sunday evening, Israel to already lose what? Twice. Israel has already lost twice. And he has done that. God has allowed that to, to fashion them, to bring them closer to himself. So let's go to verse 27. We see that Israel now, after losing twice, approaches God. We saw some of this last week. Approaches God for the third time to ask for help. Uh, and God assures them of victory, as we saw last week. Let's look at verse 27 to 28. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. As I mentioned, this is happening in the early, early history of Judges. Judges 17 to 21 is an appendix to the book. So this is actually happening perhaps before chapter 2 of Judges. So Eliezer, uh, Phinehas is still the high priest. And the ark of God is there. And listen to what Israel asked. Let's read on verse 28. Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? Or shall we cease? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I'll give them into your hand. So God is saying, go and attack tomorrow, uh, the war is already won, victory is assured, and of course what happens is that Israel goes out, it gets ready, it's war machine, and it quickly swings into action and goes to battle. Let's read on 29 to verse 31. So Israel set many in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day, and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. 
And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike. So Benjamin is now striking the, pe the people of Israel and kills some of the people in Iowas, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeon. And in the open country, about 30 men of Israel now lose their lives, we read there in verse 31. So like before, the army of Benjamins appears to have a happy end. Okay? Israel has lost twice already, and it looks like this third battle will just turn out the same. They look that they're winning, and they start bragging, right? Look at verse 32. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us as at first. As I read this, I imagined that if this was happening now, we can imagine the army generals of Benjamin, perhaps, going on Twitter saying, Look, the war is over. Israel, pull back. You are on the wrong side of history here. You've lost now for the third time again. But you see, what Benjamin doesn't know is that Israel is now losing on purpose. Okay? Because it has split the army in two. This is very important to understand. Israel now, this time, changes strategy. It split the army in two. So the larger army is attacking Gibeah from the north. It's making a frontal assault. The smaller army, though, is creeping in quietly from the west. This is a tactic Joshua used at AI to great effect. And that's what's happening here. And so what's happening is that the front of the, the larger army now is losing on purpose and, the, and it stopped pushing hard and it's starting to lose on purpose to draw them, to draw Gibeah, uh, the Benjaminites, out of Gibeah so that the smaller army can creep in from behind. And of course that's what happens here. And they deal Benjamin a devastating blow. Let's read on verse 32. Uh, and the people of Benjamin said they are routed before us as at first, uh, but the people of Israel, the larger army said, this is what they're doing, let us free and draw them away from the city to the eye, which is a larger army. And the other men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Beltama. And the men of Israel who were in ambush, that is a smaller army, rushed out of their place for Marigiba from the west, and there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of Israel, and the battle was hard. This is the battle between the larger army and the Benjaminites. And the Lord, and the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. Because, of course, what's happened here is that the smaller army has gone in, we'll see in a moment. And basically, it has set on fire the city, which we'll read on later on. And so when the men of Benjamin now are looking back to see what's happening, of course, their city is on fire, and they feel they've already lost. And the front army now can go in to defeat them. So Israel has now completely smashed Benjamin. But listen to this. The author of Judges does not want us to forget who has defeated Benjamin. Look at verse 35. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. God is the hero of the story here. It is him. Now, it's interesting that Israel has had to change strategy. It has, it has been clever. But at the end of the day, it is God who has done it. And let us note here clearly that God is true to the born, isn't it? When God promises us something, he keeps it because he loves to keep his promises. If God says to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you, he means it. If he says nothing shall separate you from the love of God, he sticks to it. 
Are you a true follower of Jesus this morning? Then trust the word of God. You should never doubt in darkness what God has promised you in light. In the light of his word. And notice here that because God is faithful and holy, he doesn't tolerate false believers. We see plainly here that God destroys one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's not skip over that. This is a civil war in which God destroys one of the twelve tribes of Israel. We'll see later cities are even eradicated. Not just the Hami itself. Now some, of, some people here, you may struggle with the idea that God destroys human beings. You struggle with the idea that God destroys people he has created and loves. And he destroys them because they have rejected him. And that makes some people uncomfortable. Well, we can come to that, but it is much worse than that. Take a look outside Gibeah. The 26,000 dead bodies there are not bodies of people who don't attend church. They are not dead bodies of atheists of Canaan. The dead bodies out there are of religious people who believe in God. They have been giving offerings. They are part of the nation. They tick all the boxes. Except one. They don't tick the box of their heart. Their hearts are far from God. The Bible is saying to us here that being a child of God, friend, is not a matter of birth or nationality. It's not a matter of denomination. It's not a matter of being born in a Christian family. It is a matter of the heart. Does your heart love God? You attend church regularly, yes. But do you love Jesus? You have said the sinner's prayer. But do you long for the things that God longs for? You speak Christianese. You sound like a Christian. You've read well. Good theology. But does sin grieve your heart? Do you tremble at your sin? Does it break your heart when you sin against God? You're a prayer warrior, I know that. You pray a lot. But is there genuine love for God himself and his people? All those are marks of a true conversion. Because you see, if the answer to any of these questions is no, then simply put, you look outside like Benjamin. Okay, you look outside like God's people. You look like you belong to Israel. <laughs> but the tragedy is that in your heart, you are Benjamin. Your heart has not truly surrendered to Jesus. You are not converted to be exact. And beloved, that is a heartbreaking situation for any of us sat here this morning to be here. It is heartbreaking because right here, right now, we have two groups of people sat next to each other. One with God and one with Satan. It is heartbreaking because this is a situation also in our families. We are brothers and sisters. One is in the camp of God. One is in the camp of Satan. 
It is heartbreaking because God is reaching out to you across the chasm of sin by the death of Christ. But you are refusing to come to Jesus. You are refusing to surrender to him. That is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking because Jesus is so wonderful. He left the glories of heaven for you and you are rejecting him to remain in Satan's domain. That's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking because you see, the all-powerful God has set his face against you. All of his power, all of his strength, all of his wisdom, all of it is in this wrath that he has set on you. The wrath of God is on you as we speak. That is heartbreaking. Because you stand for refusing to truly surrender to Christ. You stand condemned to eternal destruction. And this morning I plead with you to examine your heart. Don't examine your church attendance record. Don't examine whether you have been baptized. Don't look at the membership book, friends. Look at your heart. Are you truly converted? Have you come to that position of true repentance and surrender to him? Because if you haven't, it is tragic. Friends, it's heartbreaking. The desire of every pastor is, to, is that every single person will get to heaven. And so I plead with you to repent of your rebellion, examine your heart, become a true believer by truly surrendering to Him. Heaven is not going to be about Grace Baptist, Reformed, or anything like that. Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's what it will be about. So become a true believer by trusting in Christ. No tick boxes, no empty religion, no one step in the world and one step in the church. Wholehearted surrender to Christ and clinging only to the cross of Christ. Come to Jesus. Lay your life down for before him. And when you do that, the wonderful thing is that you will share in the victory of God. And that is the second and final implication. So the first implication is all false believers will be destroyed by God. And that is tragic. The second implication is that all true believers, those who are truly believers, are victorious in in Christ. Now, I said there are two accounts in this story. And that becomes quite important now because we have read, what we've read is a summary But what happens now as we look at the verses that follow now from verse 36, in the middle of that, is that we, if you like, what the the author of Judges does now is he rewinds the account, not to the beginning, but to somewhere in the middle, and he's doing that to give us a close-up view. If you like, it's a bit like a documentary now. We've watched a bit of a general news report, but now we're going in with the soldiers. He's just rewinding to give us a different vantage point. He's zooming in. And the reason he's doing this, the reason we have these two parallel accounts, they contain, you know, more detail, one different details. But the reason we have that is really to show us how God now has worked through Israeli soldiers to win the war. And that's why it doesn't rewind at the start. It rewinds somewhere to the middle. And he zooms in. And he zooms in at that point in verse 6, where Israel is dividing its army, as we said, 
The larger army is tacking from the north in verse 36, and the small army is quietly entering uh, from the west. Let's see what he says. Let's go back. In the middle of verse 36, verse 36 actually starts off by saying, to the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. Now, the new account, if you like, the parallel account starts. Again, the men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin. This is the larger army. Because they trusted the men in ambush. That is a smaller army. Whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the, men, then the men in ambush hurried and rushed in against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now they appointed signals. So he's just describing what was happening. Now they appointed signal between the men of Israel. This is the larger army. And the men in the ambush, the smaller army, was that they had made a great cl- that when they had made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city. So when they've crept in, they should make a great cloud of smoke, okay? And the men, verse 39 tells us, the men of Israel should turn in battle. So that's the plan. Now, Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men. So this is a decoy. And then we are told, they said, surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. So they are boasting, as we've seen already. Verse 40 tells us, but when the smoke began to rise up out of the city in a column of smoke, when the signal began to rise, you get what I'm saying? The Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole city went up in smoke. So this is something I've explained already, but it's telling us again here how it worked. Essentially, the tribe of Benjamin are attacking the larger decoy army, only to look back, as I've said, and to see the city of Gibeah going up in smoke behind them. And of course, they then start panicking. And while they are panicking, the Israeli army, of course, God's, God is in for them and begins to mow them down, destroy everything. Let's read verse 41 to verse 44. The men of Israel turned, the larger army, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohar as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. Israel has destroyed 18,000 Benjamin soldiers. And now they're going for the ant to wipe out, listen, not just the army of Benjamin, but everything, including except 600 people left. Let's read verse 45 to the end. And they turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. 5,000 of them were cut down in the highways, and they pursued hard to Gidom, and 2,000 of them were struck down. So all that fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. These are world-class soldiers. They have been hunted down and they have been killed by the army of Israel. But, look at verse 47. But the men, the men, the 600 men, that is men of Benjamin, turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimon and remained at the rock of Rimon for men. So if you have run away, we'll come back to that point, actually, in the evening. Verse 48, And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men and beasts, everything, all that they found, and all the towns they found, they set on fire. Now, whether Israel here is being excessive in its destruction of Benjamin, 
or not is beside the point. The central point here is that God is working through righteous wrath through Israel to completely bring punishment on these false believers. God's wrath has been poured out on Benjamin. Everything completely destroyed. And we've talked about that. So more importantly here is that the victory of God over Benjamin is also Israel's victory. Because notice here that they prayed to God for victory and God granted them victory. And God has granted it to them. They are triumphing over their opposition. The war is over now. God's people have won. Because God has enabled them. And I want to tell you this morning that what is true for Israel is also true for us in Jesus. Because you see, as we learned last week, Israel here is not so much as an example for us as pointing us forward to Jesus, the true Israelite. Jesus comes as king who conquers his enemies. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has defeated sin, death, and hell for us. If you are a true believer today, you share in the victory of Christ. Now, this does not mean there's no more fighting for us to do. We still engage in spiritual warfare. And the reason is simply this. The war against evil has been won for us by our Lord Jesus. But while we are still alive in this world, God is involving us to do some mop-up jobs. Okay? The war is finished, but we're going around doing some mop-up jobs. This is why God has left you in this world. Why? Because you are the means through which he's now enforcing his victory. How do you do that? Through the spread of the gospel. Until Christ comes in glory. God could have ended it all on Calvary. End of story. Save just a few. But out of his grace, you see, he's involving you in that. And this means we still face opposition. Because even though Satan has lost, he has not yet been caged. He's walking around refusing to quit. Even though Jesus has destroyed the power of sin in our lives, this world is still full of deadly landmines. If you're familiar with civil war, long before the war has finished, there are still landmines to be cleared. That's what Princess Di was involved in, isn't it? That work of fight, you know, helping to ban landmines. Because in any war, there are always remnants of danger remaining. And it's the same for us. Christ has defeated, has removed the guilt of sin, has defeated the power of sin, but the landmines of sin still remains. It is a legacy of the spiritual war that has been fought and won by Christ. And even though Jesus has ushered in already, listen, we'll look at Mark at the beginning of, 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 of July, we'll see that the kingdom has already broken in. Christ has, is establishing his kingdom. It's already here. And yet, there's still an element of the not yet. There's still the new heavens and the new earth to come. My point is that as long as we're still alive in this world, we will face opposition. And you need to remember this truth. You need to remember the truth that Jesus has conquered for you so that you can face your opposition properly. Friend, now is not the time for you to switch sides. Team Jesus has won. If you've come to Christ, stick with him. Why would you switch from a winning team? Your team has just won the Premier League. Is that the time now you start supporting Fulham? Of course not. 
Christ has won. All that awaits you is a victory parade. And you are victorious in him already. Now I know some of you are thinking, Chola, I wish I felt like you. I really do. Uh, I have surrendered to Jesus. And to be honest, I don't feel victorious. To be honest, Chola, my walk with Christ often feels like the government war on terror. One day I'm successful in one area only to suffer defeat in another area. And sometimes I feel like an hypocrite. Sometimes I doubt whether God is working in my life. I'm struggling. I know this victory, but I'm struggling to see it and feel it. Do you recognize some of this? Well, I do. And that's why this truth today is so important, isn't it? All true followers of Jesus are victorious in Christ, friend. In Christ, not in us. We are victorious in him. The Bible is saying, <laughs> stop being narcissistic. Is that the word, right? Stop looking at yourself constantly in the mirror. Look at Christ. Look at Christ, friend. It is him who has triumphed. And you have triumphed in him. Look at Jesus. Take a closer look at him there on that brutal Roman cross. Look at him there, hanging there on the cross. You are there with him. Jesus has removed the guilt of sin and triumphed over all cosmic powers of this dark age. Look at the empty tomb. It is empty, friends. It is empty. Jesus is alive. Death cannot hold him. And you are now alive in him forever. You are now a new creature in Christ. Sin has no power over you. Friends, the old you died on the cross. So look at that empty tomb again. Remind yourself of that truth. Don't stop there. Take a look at the seat of heaven. Jesus is sat there now. And you are there, sat with him, ruling and reigning, victorious in heaven with Christ. And you know what? If you keep looking at him, one of these days you shall see our Lord face to face. You will live with him in the new heaven and the new earth. One day there will be no more sin, no more pain, no more opposition, no more Gibeah, no more Benjamin. Friends, there will be no more Brexit, no more anything that worries us. You live with the Savior you love forever. And beloved, this is your reality in Jesus. Beloved friends, there are no losers. Listen, there are no losers among those who have the Lord as their portion. We are victors in him. So we must live by these facts of the gospel. And whatever situation you are facing, whether at home or at work, even in the life of the church, surrender that to your great champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him handle it. But I warn you, even as you do that, this is only a reality for those who are true believers. So surrender it to him as one surrendering in Christ the Lord. And may the Lord help us in this. Amen.